all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking, is a show that explores issues that relate to you and your family. To find out what we're all about, subscribe to the podcast by using any podcast app or by downloading our MPB Public Media app. Good morning and welcome to Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Hope you're having a great Wednesday morning. Had to think about what day this was and that ought to be a cognitive anchor for me uh, here at the studio that this is indeed Wednesday, but it is. Unless you're listening to the podcast and that's a good plug for that. That means that uh, you can actually listen to all of our um, um, MPB Think Radio programs at your leisure, whatever is the best time for you. I know not everybody can listen to this uh, program live, although um, that's sort of what we've designed it for. But we do have other ways to listen to that. You can go to any of your podcasting apps and download. Uh, if you just look for Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio, you can download that and listen to it whenever you want. Maybe you can you know, catch up a segment that you missed or maybe you just didn't quite get what somebody said up front that's uh, available for you but we are here for you live right now that's right you can reach us this morning with any type of healthcare question that you might have about yourself or somebody else you can email us the email address is remedy at mpbonline.org Absolutely gorgeous weather in Mississippi and in throughout the South, and uh, hopefully we're not going to get any of the smoke. I think it's far enough north, um, but that is a um, you know it's uh, becoming an increasing. Uh, uh, health hazard for a lot of people in the northern part of the United States. So if you are traveling there, particularly if you have any type of health issue related to your lungs, be it asthma, chronic bronchitis, or COPD or emphysema, you might want to uh, you know just check that out before you go because it's not insignificant. I was uh, just uh, discussing it with our producer Kevin Farrell before we started, and you know if I actually was following something else of an event that was going on that I saw on Instagram uh, in New York City, and you could tell in the background that there was a significant haze there, but it is a big health hazard, again, particularly if you have um, if you have other health issues. And it's not just New York City. There's lots of big swaths across uh, multiple states where the, uh, the fires from uh, Canada are uh, impeding air quality throughout that region. So if you're traveling there, uh, just sort of watch out. Here in Mississippi, if it looks hazy, usually that means our humidity is high or the pollen is out. So uh, I might sound a little stopped up myself, and yep, 
That's just because of those reasons, the pollen mostly. So uh, it hit me right as I was coming on my way. So who knows what was blooming uh, in route to MPB Studios. Um, th- this is, uh, you know, a lot of people ask, you know, what's the topic for the day? The topic is anything you bring up. That's right. You can, um, on Wednesdays, we sort of open it up to any type of topic that's related to things like a new symptom that you might be having or maybe a new medication that you didn't quite understand or maybe you saw something in the news that you wanted to just check out and get our opinion on. We would be glad to do that right now. You know, uh, as people get out in the summertime, and certainly kids are out of school, most of them anyway, and uh, if you're traveling around the state and looking for some good places to go, if you're going down to the beaches of our beautiful, pristine, uh, white sand beaches on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, there is a couple of water advisory warnings there. And people say, you know, what is that about? And is it is it something that we should just avoid those completely? If you read the fine print, which I always you know, advise people to do, whether it's a medication or otherwise. So basically, all the beaches, all the water areas, main water areas where people interact with, whether that be swimming or boating or fishing, those are all monitored for various things. And one of the things they monitor for are bacteria. And in certain times of the year, particularly if there's a lot of runoff from uh, rivers or if the soil is disturbed by a storm or different things, it can dump a lot of soil bacteria into the Mississippi Gulf Coast. Now, most of it is actually the of the sediment and the bacteria that go along with that. Um, thankfully, we have our barrier islands that sort of protect our beaches. But sometimes it sort of, uh, you know, drifts through there. And usually that's a short term thing. So right now, particularly if you have an immunocompromised uh, condition, so that's basically anything that's going to weaken your immune system. It can be a l- chronic lung disease, chronic heart disease, uh, chronic kidney disease. Those are some of the big three there. Uh, or if you have, uh, if your own medications, maybe for an autoimmune disease that puts you at risk, Right now, at least, they're advising that you don't get in the water. Now, for most people, even if you came into contact with these bacteria, they're not super bacteria. They're going to eat you up in about five seconds like you see on some TV or movies, uh, science fiction movies. Most of people would be fine with that, particularly if you don't have any open sores. But there is some danger to that. And for some people, it can cause a lot of problems. So if you are one of those people who do have a weakened immune system, just check out where you're going first. Maybe it's not even to the Mississippi beaches, but you can easily go online and uh, search for the water quality wherever you're going just to to know what kind of precautions you need to take, because that would certainly hamper any vacation that you have. We're going to go to Jim from Jackson. I wanted to find out what's the best thing to do if you were hap- if you happen to get bit by a snake. Sure, are we talking about poisonous snakes or any snake in general? Poisonous snakes. Yes. So, you know, uh, here in Mississippi, we do have our fair share of poisonous snakes and two big categories. So we have the pit vipers, and that usually are cottonheads, water moccasins, I'm sorry, cottonheads or water moccasins, uh, a couple of different species of rattlesnake, and then, um, uh, sorry, copperhead, water moccasin, or cottonmouth, and, um, and a couple of different species of rattlesnakes. All of those are sort of in the same category because their venom acts in a, in a certain type of way. So when they bite, they also have those long incisors that they inject their venom into you when they bite. 
um, that venom does a couple of different things. Number one, it starts to break down tissue. So it has some enzymes that help break down that, that tissue. It causes a lot of pain in the local <clears throat> area. Um, it can travel to other parts of your body and cause, um, you know, other systemic problems like with your liver or with your clotting system. Uh, so there's a lot of other things they can do. Now, we do have a coral snake, the eastern coral snake, which is not – it certainly has a different type of venom that is more in line with, like, the cobras. So it is more of a neurotoxin. However, it doesn't have those big incisors, and it really has to sort of chew on you to inject that in there. And most of the time, if you leave those alone, they're not really aggressive. Uh, much smaller snakes. But – if you are bitten, what do you do? Well, number one, you remain calm. The, one of the, the worst things to do is to panic and to run around and increase your heart rate because basically you're just going to distribute that venom, that poison throughout the rest of your body quicker. Um, it, it's recommended to elevate wherever you got bit. Most of the time that's going to be on the extremities where people get bit either on their feet, legs, or hands. Um, and then you want to... Uh, you know, clean the wound because a lot of the other problems that happen with these is they get infected with skin bacteria or, you know, if you're working outside or something, you may have other things on there. It's not recommended to cut the site, uh, to suck out the poison. You know, there's been a lot of studies on that. They really don't work very well. There's very few times where that actually works. A tourniquet if you know what you're doing, can can a loose tourniquet can actually impede some of that venom from going back up to you know to the to the uh, the rest of your body. However, if you put that tourniquet on too hard, you actually can do worse damage because you're cutting off blood supply to that. So if you're not really familiar with that or haven't been trained in in wilderness medicine, you probably don't need to fool around with that. The biggest thing is getting to a doctor quickly. And I would go in this case, uh, I would go to the local ER. We have, uh, you know, a lot of access to anti-venom. Just because you go to the ER, though, if it's a small bite that doesn't have a lot of venom in it, you know, snakes can control that. Um, so sometimes they'll bite, but they won't inject you with anything because they also need it to eat. So they try to conserve that. But if it looks like you don't have a lot of venom in there or a lot of the nasty reactions to that, they may treat you with some antibiotics and they may just watch that for a while and not give you the anti-venom. Uh, anti-venom, it used to be pulled from horses. So they basically used horse serum uh, that had antibodies against the, um, against the snake venom. Now it's, uh, it's recombinant. So a lot of people with the old style of things, some, some of them actually died from getting the anti-venom, uh, the serum, but just because it was from a horse. Now it's much cleaner, much easier to administrate that. But it, you, they probably are going to watch that person for a while in the ER but that's the that is the the best thing to do. Anything else you put on it is not going to help. Anything else you take by mouth is not going to help. Um, again, no cutting to the area like lancing it or making any kind of incisions, Y incisions or any of that. You know, they used to have these little kits that have these little suckers that you'd put on there to suck out the stuff. Don't do that. Um, but getting to a physician so they can assess the damage and see what they need to do is probably the best thing. And an ER is the best situation. There's not really going to be any clinic that's going to have those resources to, to uh, treat that wound. There's nothing really then that you can take with you 
No, not really. I mean, you can, you know, a first aid kit's good to have if you're going to be out, like if you're camping or something like that. But beyond the loose tourniquet, and again, you have to be extremely careful with that because, you know, if you if you look at historically on the films and stuff, people will make a tourniquet and they'll just cut off all blood supply. Uh, after, you know, after 20, 30 minutes, that's going to start to do some damage to the area. So you can actually lose more tissue and maybe even a finger or an arm that way. Um, so it's not really recommended to do that unless you, you know, unless you've been trained in that. There is some advanced training in that. We actually, for a lot of, particularly for our ER residents in training, they have a wilderness medicine um, uh, training because they certainly are going to see those patients when they come into the ER. But as far as anything to take with you, there's not going to be anything really that you could take that's going to have a significant impact. Thank you very much. I just hope I don't get bit. That's right. That's the fr- it, yeah. Probably the best advice is don't go approach a snake, even if you think it, it's you know if you if it's if there's any kind of doubt if it's poisonous or not. Most snake bites, including in Mississippi, are from provoked attacks. In other words, people go up and they poke the snake or they try to pick the snake up or they're doing all kinds of things with the snake. That's when people get bit. Most of the time, that snake's going to want to get out of your out of your area. They're, they try to avoid things. Some of them are more aggressive at different times. I had a copperhead come at me uh, you know, from a lake. I was walking around it um, not too long ago, and... I just moved on away and and got out of the way. You don't have to just stand your ground and and try to do something to the snake. That's probably when you're going to get bit. And I'm glad that's not part of my religious rituals. Absolutely. All right, Jim. Thanks for calling. Craig from Biloxi. Good morning, Craig. Good morning. Uh, I was stung on my knee with a scorpion, and it felt like a burning cigar put out on my leg. And I put a tourniquet on my leg. And a few minutes later, I could not walk her. So just to let people know that uh, if you have a tourniquet on, you're not going to use that limb. Right. And and particularly if it's, a, you know, in Mississippi, we have, I think, two species of scorpions. But um, the scorpions we have here are not dangerous. I mean, they're, they can sting you, but basically and it'll hurt like the Dickens, like you just described. But it's basically about the same as getting stung by a wasp. Uh, so it is not something that you're going to, you know, again, you see these movies and there are a couple of scorpions out in the southwest and the western United States that are a little bit more dangerous. But our two species, first of all, they're very small um, unless they're, you know, if they're bigger, they're probably hitching a ride from somewhere else on a vehicle or something. But the native species we have, it's like a wasp sting. So. If you think about it, you wouldn't put a tourniquet around, you know, a, a digit or anything else. So I think, Craig, that brings up a good point to not do it um, because, again, you can do a lot more damage from the tourniquet than you would uh, just doing some simple things like putting a cold compress on it. I know a, a lot of people, you know, you could probably treat it the same way that you would treat a wasp sting. Um, so taking something like Benadryl uh, orally, the topical Benadryls don't really work, putting some hydrocortisone cream on it you know a lot of people and certainly ice would work too a lot of people do the old tobacco thing or they'll do like a steak or something like that it's really more of the of the uh it's not going to inactivate anything because basically that that venom is injected into you so 
that's, you know, unless you inject it, which don't do that either. I don't want anybody grabbing a syringe and injecting anything. But, um, yeah, just the simple things usually work, unless you can have an allergic response to it. So if you have any airway problems or swallowing problems, or if that area which you're stung in, whether that's bee, wasp, scorpion, um, if it travels up uh, the body, like if it's a you know if the whole leg now is is inflamed or or swollen, that's the point where you need to you know go get checked out because it it might be an allergic reaction to it. Most of the time, people do fine with it though. Yeah, I didn't have any ill effects. It just it just scared me because I was I've never been bitten and did not have experience with them. Yeah, yeah. And all, yeah, all, all I got was a little sore spot on my knee. Right, right. Yeah, it does hurt, though. It's, you know, like a wasp sting or a hornet or, or something like that. But scorpions are in the same family as spiders, uh, so they're arachnids. They actually eat insects. Um, but uh, here in Mississippi, which is a little bit different climate for them, you know, typically it's a warm and dry climate that they like to live in, but there are two species that live here, and they're really not that big. Um, you know, I mentioned before, like, I think one of the species, or if not both of them, are about the size of a dime. Uh, so they're really small little things, but they can pack a punch. Okay. And, and one more thing. I see a lot of copperheads in the late evening on the hardtop. They're out there soaking up the heat. So they just yep. lay there on the hardtop. So if you're walking on the road. Yep. Beware. Yeah, they can be out there doing that. And, uh, you know, cleaning out things, too, a lot of times they'll move into our spaces only if there's food to eat. Um, so if you've got a lot of mice, if you've got some, you know, some food or you're storing something, I was noticing some of my birds, see so you had a little hole in it and I was like, Oh, got to move that stuff around. Um, but, uh, that's when they're going to come in. They're going to, you know, come in looking for that. So, uh, you got to be careful out there. We do have a lot of critters here in Mississippi that can do some damage. Okay. I'm going to get back to the passenger side here of the uh, radio show. All right, Craig. Thank you for driving for a little while. We do appreciate it. This is Southern Remedy. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning. Uh, We're answering any of your medical questions that you might have. We're going to go to David from Horn Lake. Good morning, David. Uh, Good morning. Um, In the past, I've had uh, been susceptible to, I can't even talk. That's okay. I've been susceptible to uh, motion sickness, but it's always been external factors. You know, uh, deep sea fishing, you know, riding a Ferris wheel, something like that. But three mornings ago, I woke up. And, and and when I woke up, I was feeling funny, and my vision, the room was actually moving. And I started getting nauseated, and I actually broke out in a, in a sweat. And uh, I've been down for three days. It's finally gotten better, but my it feels like my brain is still mushy. Anyway, I, can, I, I made a doctor's appointment, but I can't see until uh, Friday morning. So my question to you is... Uh, uh, does, uh, can you get inner ear? I think that's what it is, inner ear. And if so, there's a medication you can take to lessen the severity of it because it was so bad I couldn't even drive. Yeah, David, there's, there's, um, you know, that's a fairly common. And, and, and uh, excuse me, I need to interrupt you. And no, also, go ahead. Is, was there uh, something that triggered it? I mean, I, I woke up that way. That's what freaked me out. Yeah. Yeah, okay. it it can. That is a common thing that, that people get. So the general term of that would be, you know, inner ear can mean a different a lot of different things to different people. I think what you're describing is vertigo. 
and vertigo is that um, sensation that the room is spinning. You may it may be accompanied with a fullness in the back of your throat or your ears that you feel, and it can be caused by a number of things. So it can be caused by a virus that you have beforehand that sort of knocks out the inner ear system that controls balance. And that is uh, three little, uh, it almost looks like the loop-to-loop on a roller coaster is what they look like in three different orientations. And those are the semicircular canals, and they have fluid in them, they have hairs in them, and they have little rocks uh, no kidding. I'm not making this up. And those are called otoliths, is O-T-O-L-I-T-H-S. And those little otoliths, as they move around and strike those hairs, that's the input that your brain gets about where you are in space. So, you know, are you upright? Are you laying down? And they're in three different orientations to, it's almost like a gyroscope system on a, a spaceship. So it tells where you are. If something happens to those, for whatever reason, that can be trauma. It could be sometimes as you get older, that system can be damaged. Sometimes it can be an infection that you have, and a couple of days or even a week or two later, you have the symptoms. Or sometimes you can't even like pinpoint what actually was going on with it. But it, it creates that sensation, particularly if you move a certain way. So if you're getting up, if you're tilting your head to one side, like you're turning around to look at something, those are motions that can trigger this. And actually, there are a couple of maneuvers to both diagnose it and to treat it. Um, and if you, when you do go to the doctor, ask them about those. Say, to, hey, Dr. Jimmy mentioned something I could do at home if this happens. Uh, to set everything back. Because basically what you're doing is resetting those little stones that float around in there in the fluid in your semicircular canals. Um, there, As far as medications, there are a couple of, uh, you know, like over-the-counter antivert-type uh, medications. That's one of the names for it. Or meclizine is another one. Um, those do help. Scopolamine helps too, but it can cause some problems with dry mouth and some changes to your vision. Some of the same things you would take sort of to, pre- to prevent this if you were, say, going out on a, on a boat or a ship for extended periods of time. So you can take those over the counter until you're waiting. Uh, it can be a mess, though. I mean, it can be really be debilitating. A lot of people have nausea and vomiting that are associated with that just because of the vertigo feeling. Uh, but it's that room spinning. Um, that's the part that is really characteristic about that. If they say, hey, everything just all of a sudden starts spinning or I feel like I'm going to fall down because of that. But that's that's vertigo. That And, and most of the time, it's something called benign positional paroxysmal vertigo. So it mean, just means that it doesn't cause any long-term problems. It can be, it can come and go. It's positional, like we just described, and, and the vertigo component. So BPPV uh, is the most likely thing. There are a couple of other things that can cause that, so you do need to get checked out for it. And uh, But if it is the BPPV, it's fairly easy to treat in about 90-plus percent of people. Okay. Uh, well, like I said, I've had it for it, – it's getting better, but I'm still not 100%. I just, yeah. Is there anything that, that – that, like I said, I woke up and it hit me. Is there anything like a, that uh, that causes a trigger? How, is there any yeah, way you can go ahead at times? You can maybe take some medication before you – you know, because, I mean, I was out. I couldn't do nothing. Yeah. So, I, couldn't even drive, I couldn't even drive a vehicle. I was so – Oh yeah, yeah. It, it could be that I debilitating. Too, so I mean, that's why I need to, you know, yeah. if I take some medication ahead of time, the the lessen the severity of the 
uh, it won't happen again. Yeah, when you see the doctor, they can they can prescribe something if it comes on again. Probably the biggest thing is how you got up. That may have triggered it, just that motion. It may have a predisposition to it. And then once you, because, you know, that's common too. People will say, I was laying down in my bed, I got up and I turned to one side, and that's when it started. Or I, you know, jumped out of bed to go use the restroom or something. And that's when it started. So avoiding that motion um, rather than like all the other stuff that you were doing at that time. Of course, if you're sleeping, you know, don't really know that. But that motion of how you got up, avoiding that would be key. Um, but a lot of people don't have any problems after they, their initial episode. They it sort of never, you know, it's sort of the same thing you're describing. It slowly gets better over a, a few days to a week. Okay, thanks so much. All right, David, thanks for calling. So far, it's been a lot of creepy crawlies and a little bit of vertigo, so we would love to hear what's on your mind. Don't think it's just what's on your mind either, because it probably is going to affect at least a handful of other people who are listening this morning. We always get that feedback. It's like, you know what? Somebody called in. I thought nobody else had that. But sharing that did help us to talk about that uh, subject. So, well, since we talked about some uh, snakes and uh, scorpions and uh, lots of other things, things that could bite you. What about just the general animal bite? Um, so those are, those are some things that you can certainly get. Of course, dogs and cats are very common, but it could be another animal. If it's a domestic animal, knowing about that animal and sort of their history, and again, if it's provoked or not, um, is important. And uh, the vaccination history of an animal can be very important if it's a pet uh, to sort of know what's going on. First thing you want to do, though, is just wash that wound, that bite with soap and water, unless it's a very nasty wound, if something's hanging off there. Uh, but if it's just, uh, you know, a break in the skin or the subcutaneous tissue, that would be really good to uh, uh, just wash off with soap and water. And it, again, it depends on the animal. Different animals have different bacteria in their mouth. Um, dogs tend to be more closely aligned to, uh, you know, humans and what they have. So some, you know, just very common antibiotics like augmentin uh, are sometimes prescribed for those so that they don't get infected. Uh, and uh, we should also include human bites with that. Certainly we see that more in kids. Uh, some of the nastiest Wounds you can get is from a human bite. Our mouths are full and teeming of all kinds of bacteria. You would think because they're in our mouths, they don't cause any problems. But uh, they do just fine in our mouths. But once you inject that with a bite or a crush injury, because most human bites are not, you know, not like a, a sharp uh, our teeth aren't aren't that sharp to do that. It's more of a crush injury that can cause a lot of damage. So those we sort of take a little bit more seriously in how we uh I uh, shouldn't say less less seriously for animal bites, but we do uh, are a little bit more intensive about how we treat that. So just something to think about, but uh, general care is probably the first thing that you want to do with just washing that off with good soap and water and then getting it checked out um, to see if uh, anything needs to be. And a lot of times we'll go ahead and treat those with antibiotics up front to make sure that they're not going to get infected. We're going to go to Jane from Biloxi. Good morning, Jane. Okay, I'm 87 years old. And glad to be alive, but everything has slowed down in my body. And I notice my esophagus is giving me trouble lately. Like I can't swallow my food as fast as I used to because I get like this pain 
and my chest wearily. She said she had the same thing, and she said that she she had expanded. They stripped her esophagus, and I've never heard of that. I'm just wondering if you ever heard of anything like that before. Yeah, actually, I have. Um, so, uh, you know, esophageal problems as we get older can be common, and it can be caused by a number of things. If you've had reflux, uh, where you reflux stomach contents back up into the esophagus, over time that can cause scarring because it's a very acidic environment in the stomach, quite different than it, what it is in the esophagus. And that can sort of scar that tissue, and it can become narrowed. You, you very well described sort of the sensation that a lot of people have. They either have difficulty swallowing food, particularly solid foods, or they have pain or both with that. And a lot of times they'll be able to pinpoint where it feels like it's getting stuck or where it's hurting the worst. And it's just because that narrow interior, that you know, the esophagus, ideally, it expands and it uh, contracts. So it's a big tube of muscle, basically, that helps push food down from our mouths down to our stomach. Um, but if it if the interior of it is scarred down, you're just not going to be able to push food through there very easily. The gastroenterologists, though, have helped us out with this. So they can do a number of things. They can do a scope. This is where they have a small tube. Uh, it's called an EGD. And they uh, esophagastroduodenoscopy. Uh, and they pass that tube. They give you a little something to, to keep you, you know, sort of knocked out a little bit. And then they um, pass that tube into the esophagus down to the stomach. And the advantage with that is you can see exactly what's going on on the interior of the esophagus. And while you're there, you can go ahead and treat certain things. And you mentioned, you know, the lay term for this is sort of uh, stretching your esophagus or or stripping the esophagus. It, it doesn't sound, I mean, it sounds terrible when you when you hear somebody call it that. But basically what they're doing is if they notice a narrowing and has a stricture, so a stricture just means a narrowing of the esophagus at some point, a lot of times they can go down and they can have a little balloon on the end of that scope and they blow up the balloon and they enlarge that part of the esophagus out. And it, it basically, it breaks a couple of those little scar tissue uh, places to help open it back up. And sometimes people have to have that done every year, once a year, maybe every two to three years. And it doesn't cause a really a lot of problems. And the gastroenterologists know how to do it really well. But that is something that is recommended. Now, that may not be what you have to have done. Now, there are other things that can cause that same sensation, and you want to watch out for those. I mean, rarely, um, you know, there's a tumor or a cancer that's associated with that, um, or it might be a dysmotility disorder. In other words, your the muscles are less coordinated in your esophagus, and they're sort of going into spasm, which can cause the same exact symptoms, and it'll also not allow you to swallow food correctly. And the treatment for that is a little bit different. Sometimes they treat it with medication. Sometimes they can, again, while they do that scope, they can, you know, do some things. So they may want to do a couple of tests first, like a barium swallow, where you just swallow like a liquid that they can see on x-ray as it goes down and where it stops. And that way they'll know when they do the scope, if they follow that up with the scope, that that's what the problem is. If it's one of those issues where your esophagus is in spasm, 
then uh, they may want to, you know, do something a little bit di- different to begin with. But that's who I would call your, you know, physician's office and say, hey, I'm having this problem. Can I go see a, a GI doctor, a gastroenterologist? And they can get you there. And that's probably the people that need to make that diagnosis. Thank you very much. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for calling. Esophageal problems chronically are uh, very common. And we have a lot of reflux that can be associated with lots of other things, including obesity. And it's just, uh, you know, if you think about it, it's sort of a balloon type thing. If you push on a balloon enough, it'll whatever its contents are, are going to come out. Uh, and the esophagus is meant to sort of a low pressure system where it's uh, basically transporting food or water down into your stomach. But if the if there's something pushing on your stomach, um, it's going to come back out. Either it's going to go down or it's going to come back out. And a lot of times the path of leaf resistance is coming back out. If you don't believe that, when you play with a baby and start, uh, particularly when I'm examining a baby, uh, their system has, is like a really, it's really easy to push stuff. So you got to be on your toes because uh, they will they will uh, christen you with stomach contents fairly easily. Let's go to Ann, who's on the road. Good morning, Ann. Good morning. How are you? Good. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Um, I was listening to the lady with the esophageal kind of issues, and I do agree she needs an upper GI, but I had sort of a similar thing, and I told I pointed right to the spot where it always happens before I had my GI, and I came out because and it was way, it was kind of lower, right below my um, sternum. And uh, <laughs> so I got out of out from surgery, came and talked to me, and he goes, well, I, your throat might be a little bit sore. <laughs> because I've stretched it. And I said, okay, well, that wasn't where the problem was, really. <laughs> and he goes, I think it's a tearing but it's only a little bit. It's, you know, just you take your thoughts, look good. I took a biopsy and something to check it. Anyway, within two weeks, I had the same exact issue again. So my regular doctor, he said, oh, you're having a esophageal spasm, probably. And I got less than uh, keeping my purse. And I, I don't have it. It doesn't happen very often, but I'll tell you when it does happen. When I don't chew my food well enough, and it's with rice and chicken or two things that seem to get stuck there. <laughs> yep. I've yeah. Got yeah. Esophageal <laughs> spasm can can be this exactly the same and you're right I, you, you need the correct diagnosis first to sort of know how to treat it the other thing that sometimes triggers for some people is temperature so either hot liquids like coffee or cold um, so that those are triggers too levison is an anti-spasmodic medication uh, it's most commonly used for irritable bowel syndrome but it has been used pretty successfully in conditions like this so it's sort of if you want to think about it, it sort of chills out the muscle system um, in your gut. So that's that's one of the things that can be used to treat. If you have hypertension too, there are some uh, there are some medications that can be used that treat both hypertension and this. So, uh, and there may be some medications that are causing this. So you do have to be a little bit of you know comprehensive about that. But I think Ann brought up the exactly the same points that you want to have that that correct diagnosis first. And sometimes it does take a little bit of time to do that. And it takes multiple tests to do it. Uh, Not every 
medical condition has that one test where you could just say, okay, this is what you have. We're going to treat it. Um, I wish it were that simple, um, but it does. Sometimes it takes time. Sometimes it takes multiple tests to get to the to the correct diagnosis. So thank you, Ann, for uh, for commenting on that and just sort of elaborating a little bit more. We do appreciate that and uh, safe travels while you're on the road. Let's go to Joy from Alabama. Good morning, Joy. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I have an adult son living at home who uh, has a serious brain disorder, and he mm-hmm. is having nighttime incontinence problems. Um, he seems, During the day, he seems to have to go to the bathroom. It's frequent, frequent go to the bathroom. Um, and we checked with his psychiatrist, and none of his medi- he didn't. he said that none of his medication could be causing it. Do you have any suggestions about where we might want to go next? Yeah. So uh, if you have incontinence, particularly at night, there can be a number of things that might cause that. So sometimes that is, particularly if you have other medical conditions that are affecting your brain function or uh, metabolic conditions that are affecting that. So you do have to like look you know, there's there's about five or six that I would immediately want to cross off the list before we go to certain medications. Medications are one, though. So looking at those saying, OK, what are you on? Are they causing the problems uh, of, of, you know, of incontinence at night? And then after that, and I'm, I didn't quite hear this. I'm, I'm assuming this is urine incontinence and not fecal incontinence. Yeah. Okay. Yes, yes. Yeah. Now I have a medication list if you'd like to hear it. Sure, go ahead. Okay. He takes Depakote, mm-hmm. Olanzapine, Clozapine, Metformin, um, I don't know if this is right, Pravastatin, mm-hmm. and then he takes um, Clozaril on an asne basis. Yeah. Yeah. So several of those, uh, certainly there's anti-seizure medicine, medicine in there. Some of those are sort of, you know, for behavioral type things. And then the metformin, of course, is for either a pre-diabetic or a diabetic state. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think you said a, a statin, too, if I, a cholesterol yeah. medication. Yeah. 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 And one of the things I was going to bring up is the way our body gets rid of excess glucose or blood sugar is in the urine. So sometimes, particularly in adult patients that have this sort of constellation of things that you're describing, they can just, their blood sugar levels may be higher, and it's just spilling over into the urine. Their water goes with that. The bladder fills up, and it can only hold so much, and then that's why you have incontinence at night. So making sure that that's well-controlled would be one of the things. The other thing that you can do is actually test the urine and compare it against some things in the blood uh, that to make sure that the body is concentrating urine like it should. So in patients that do have other neurologic conditions, sometimes they can have um, a mismatch of that concentration, uh, the, the hormones that uh, the antidiuretic hormones that go to the kidney to say, okay, conserve more water don't make as much, particularly at night. They don't work that way. And there are medications that you can take at night that do just that. And it's probably not going to interfere with those other medications. But the first thing would be, I think, just to go to his general doctor and just say, hey, this is what we're dealing with. They're probably going to check those labs. It would be helpful to get some urine, too, just to see if it's if he's concentrating that appropriately. And then, um, and then to make a decision on what to do. If everything else is normal, 
then he probably could take that medication that you could give at night. Uh, vasopressin is the name of it, and it actually comes in a nose spray too that is absorbed up through the through the uh, nasal mucosa, mm-hmm. and that might that might cure your problem there. Well, um, he is supposed to have talked to his general practitioner about it, but I did not go to that visit, so it may be that he has not brought it up with him. Yeah, I'd brought. Yeah, I'd call and bring it up and and say, hey, this is a, and I can certainly, you know, it is an embarrassing thing, particularly to an adult. Mm -hmm. So it's very, you know, a lot of times that's not one that patients like to bring up. Um, But uh, it is important and certainly needs to be investigated a little bit more. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for calling. Let's go to our last caller. We've got about uh, two or three minutes here. So this is George on the road, I believe in Kansas. Good morning, George. Good morning. What's your question today? Well, Doc, I've been, uh, my wife and I run a lot, and um, I just started developing some knee pain. It's like we've been running like about a 10K, and, but it wasn't real specific knee pain. It's just kind of like around the knee, and it seemed to bother me more going up and down on hills. And, you know, I tried some Motrin, I tried some Icy Hot, but it, it still seems to be kind of lingering. Do you have any idea what that could be or what I should, how I should treat it? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of possibilities, but if you've just ramped up your mileage in running and you, your knee is stable, you don't have any previous injuries, you don't, you know, you're not 85, um, then um, what it can be is not necessarily in the knee joint, but in those ligaments and tendons and muscles around the knee. And if it's a nondescript pain that's sort of on the front part of your knee, and it's occurring when you're running up or down or jumping. You know, some people will do, you know, pick up a high-intensity interval training type thing where they're doing box jumps and those kinds of things. That can irritate those muscles around there, and you can have a tendonitis. So patellofemoral syndrome is very common, particularly in this type of situation. And it's treated very conservatively. In other words, with, you know, if you don't have any contraindications from taking an NSAID like Advil or that kind of thing, you can do that for about a week. Cut back the mileage a little bit or keep the mileage and don't run as many hills up or down if you can. If you're in Kansas, it's pretty flat. Um, but um, uh, if, you know, that, that, if you can't do that, you want to just cut back on the mileage a little bit. But that sounds like what it is. If it goes on a couple more weeks, though, I would probably have somebody look at it. They may prescribe something like some exercises you can do at home or physical therapy along with some medications. But I think that's probably what this is um, as long as the knee is stable and it's not doing and not limiting you in other ways. All right, George, thank you. That'll wrap up this hour. We want to thank everybody for calling today. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at UMMC. Southern Remedy is produced by Kevin Farrell, and the podcast producer is Abram Nanny. Tune in to uh, MPB Think Radio every weekday morning at 11 for the full Southern Remedy work lineup. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone.